This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. I'm excited to speak with Ted Harrington today. Ted Harrington is the author of Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right, and the executive partner at the Independent Security Evaluators, or ISE, the company of ethical hackers famous for being the first to hack the iPhone. He's overseen security research hacking medical devices, password managers, and cryptocurrency wallets. Ted has helped hundreds of companies fix tens of thousands of security vulnerabilities, including Disney, Amazon, Google, Netflix, Adobe, Warner Brothers, Qualcomm, and more. For his stewardship of security research that Wired Magazine called winning the prize hands down, Ted has been named both Executive of the Year by the American Business Awards and 40 Under 40 by SD Metro. He leads a team that started and organized IOT Village, an event whose hacking contest is a three-time DEF CON Black Badge winner and which represents the discovery of more than 300 zero-day vulnerabilities and counting. Ted's work has been featured in more than 100 media outlets, including the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and USA Today. Hi, Ted. Hi, Deb. How are you doing? Great. Let's get right into it. So, Ted, you're a leader in what's called ethical hacking. What is ethical hacking? And when does hacking become ethical? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. To answer that, we first need to, I think, define what hacking itself is, and then we can define what ethical hacking is. So this is one of these things that's very commonly misunderstood as people think about what cybersecurity is. Like anytime you read an article about whatever company getting breached, it always talks about how hackers, and I'll put that in air quotes, how hackers did whatever. And there's always this implied assumption being made that hackers are inherently bad. But Fundamentally, hackers are neither bad nor good. Hacking itself is neither bad nor good. Hacking is a problem-solving mindset that basically says, can a system behave differently than it's supposed to? And that is the, the core fundamental definition. There's not a value judgment to that. It's not saying that is a good thing or a bad thing. And the fork in the road, though, is what comes next, which is related to motivation. So why does someone want to look at a system and say, if it's supposed to do... ABC, can I make it do DEF instead? And if your intent is to harm that organization or obtain some sort of personal gain that comes either at the expense of someone else or potentially even hurts someone else, then that would be an attacker. But the other fork of the road are people and organizations who come from my corner of the world, which is where we will look at systems and say, how can it behave differently than it's supposed to? What are the flawed assumptions that go into this? But the motivation is to find those issues so that we can fix them. So it's really this classic, you know, good guy versus bad guy sort of battle. But we both fall under this realm of hackers. And the reason that our profession has the word ethical in front of it is to make it abundantly clear that the motivation is, of course, to help systems and, and do good things as opposed to do bad things. Why do we need ethical hackers in the first place? How did we get to the point where we need an ethical hacker as a profession? 
because we need to defend against the bad guys, the attackers out there. And to defend against an attacker, we really need to think like an attacker. And most people aren't really wired that way. And that's actually okay, because the truth is once you start to think like a hacker, it's like being unplugged from the matrix. You can't really get plugged back in. And a lot of, you know, you see the world very differently and not everyone can really think that way, which is okay. But the reason that we need it is that we live in a very hostile world right now. And I mean, I guess you could trace that back to the entire history of human civilization has been hostile, but now the hostility really manifests in technology in that individuals and groups are constantly attacking other individuals and groups in order to obtain some sort of gain. So first of all, we have to defend against that. And in order to defend against that, the best way to do that is to understand how they think, to think like them, and to try to really anticipate and preempt what they might be doing. I'm really interested in this line of thinking. You described hacking as essentially agnostic, meaning that it's neither bad nor good. What makes then ethical hackers different from, say, regular hackers? Is it just a matter of which side you're on? Or is it the work, the practice, somehow fundamentally different? It's the motivation, really, that I was talking about before. So the fundamental difference goes down to why you would do that, right? So when we look at a system, our intent is we want to find an exploitable vulnerability or we want to find as many exploitable vulnerabilities as we can in order to help our clients if they're hiring us or the organizations that we're performing research on if they're not hiring us. We want to help them actually improve those issues. We want to find the problem. We want to help them fix it. We're kind of like the, maybe you could think of it as personal trainer, right? When you're trying to improve your fitness, you have someone who's an expert in actually improving fitness who's, who can point out why your form is wrong and say, you want to do it this way differently because this is how you're going to actually get better. But ultimately, the work is up to you to get stronger and to stay committed to that process of improvement. But that's really the, the key difference is, is why. But then when it comes to how, those are actually very, very similar in terms of the process of ethical hacking, the steps that we go through, how we look at systems, how we actually try to discover these exploitable vulnerabilities what we do when we find them, those are, those steps are all very, very similar to what the attackers will do. But in terms of the distinction between us is really about the motivation. What got you interested in ethical hacking? What problem were you trying to solve? What kind of path did you take to get into the area? Well, for me personally, I think I took maybe an atypical path into this field. Uh, many people in ethical hacking, they come out of either in computer science for a very, very long time, or they're the people who have, you know, proverbially been hacking things since they were like four years old. There's tons of stories like that of people who just, since they were little kids, they were like tinkering with things and ripping them apart. And my path was a little different. I come more from the entrepreneurial path. I'd started a, a company in, in another field and was running some other tech companies in other fields before this. And then when I discovered security, I mean, I discovered it later, I think, than most people do. And that's one of the things when I talk to, when I have the privilege to speak to, say, college students or even high school students, and they feel like, oh, I already don't know enough about security, so it's too late for me. And I'm like, you're 17. You're you're good. You can, you know, I didn't even enter security till I was in my late 20s. And for me, the appeal was there were a few driving forces in my life, all of which I found pre to be present in security. And those are things like, I'm really driven to do, do difficult things. I'm really driven to do things that matter. I'm driven to do things that are done in the service you know, of other people. And I'm really driven to get better every day. So those are, that's like sort of my, some of my personal philosophies. But if you take me out of it, you realize those principles are all four of them really define what security is about. And so once I became exposed to the field of security overall, and then ethical hacking in particular, I just knew I was home. I was like, that's, this is what my life has been filtering towards to this point. So to me, it was a no brainer and uh, I haven't looked back.
I wanted to ask you a, a specific question about one dimension of your multiple interests, and, and that is that on your website, you say that you like storytelling and websites. And that was really intriguing to me. I'm a literary scholar by training. And so for me, the idea of storytelling and the relationship potentially between uh, ethical hacking and storytelling was something that I was hoping I might flesh out with you. To give a little bit of background, you know, when I teach the context of ethical hacking, I teach the term white hat hacker, which is a term that many people use to describe ethical hacking. And that term white hat hacker comes from a very specific kind of story, the Western. I teach, for example, uh, Westworld in that context, which has the white hat hacker as a feature of its storytelling. How did a term from a form of narrative called the Western come into use in the context of cybersecurity? What do you think that that tells us about how we understand and ethical hacking. Yeah, I, I love that question. So for people who might not be familiar with this, the old Western movies, all the way back to the day when they were you know black and white, they they would literally help the audience understand who the hero was versus who the villain was uh, by literally having the good guys wore white hats and the bad guys wore black hats. And it's, it's really in terms of a visual storytelling narrative, it's as simple as that. And I don't know who it was that first started applying that idea to security, but the reason for it is to help really differentiate this question that we've been talking about a lot today, which is what's the motivation? Why does someone do it? To make it really, really clear that it's not just hacker. So it's like saying hacker in this, I guess the way we're describing hacker is like a hat. A hat's no color. It's just a hat is a hat. But then it's, you understand now if it's a black hat or a white hat based on that sort of way we're describing it. And so I think in terms of simplicity and trying to really make it clear what side of the fence people fall and I think that's why it's been applied to I me. Mean, I don't know that for a fact, but as an author myself and someone who really spends a lot of energy trying to simplify these really technical ideas, to me, things that are that crystal clear for people to conceptualize is a really powerful and important part of a field like this. It's interesting because, of course, the form of the Western is set in the West, right? That's where the term comes from. I live in Silicon Valley, and sometimes I think of Silicon Valley as like the wild, wild West, right? Where where there really is a kind of frontier. People believe they're at a frontier. People believe that there's a moral dimension to that frontier, that there's a moral utopian vision to that frontier, and that there really is kind of a vigilante justice kind of movement such that you really see people moving fast and breaking things as part of the idea that this is this kind of lawlessness of Silicon Valley. Do you think that there's a relationship between that kind of frontier mentality, that mentality of the Western, the idea that there is this kind of like, you know, frontier lawlessness and the development of hacking as a kind of culture, black hat or white hat? In a sense, yeah, I think we could definitely draw a parallel. Here's what we have to realize about this whole topic area, right? Is that uh, I like the way that you described it as a frontier and this idea of pioneering and entrepreneurs in tech, what they're ultimately trying to do is they're saying, and I'm generalizing and oversimplifying here, but they identify a problem, they figure out a way that technology can help solve that problem. So then they go build the technology to help solve that problem. And so at its at its base core, that's what the entrepreneurs who are building companies in Silicon Valley, ultimately they're doing, that's the pioneering that they're doing. And that's sort of the frontier that we're on. It's like what human or civilization or commerce or whatever types of problems can we solve with technology? 
Now, if we think of this metaphor of the like Western mining town, you know, during the gold rush when, you know, these buildings were getting built out of wood and there was like a saloon and there was, you know, the like mud road and everything like that. There, we, we think about the entrepreneurs who set up those towns, right? To say like, okay, well, there's a need for something and I'm going to build this thing. But there's also a very sort of evil and malicious element, anything that is that new and emerging in that there's always going to be somebody who comes and tries to exploit the human condition in these, and not even just all, uh, not even just undeveloped situations. I mean, developed situations too. But if you think about that, uh, you know, ancient Western pioneering town, there was always somebody who wanted to come like rob the banks or wanted to take advantage of new people in town who wanted to run a scam, whatever. And so that's kind of what like the bad kind of hackers are. They come in and they see opportunity to exploit this new future that someone else is building. So there's someone trying to build this new future, then it attracts someone else to come in and say, well, how can I exploit this? And then that, that ultimately is what attracts people like us who come in and say, how do I make sure that we can ultimately enable that new future? And people often ask what our job is. And when I think about it in a literal sense, like, oh, well, my job, is to help find these vulnerabilities so that you can fix them so you can build better, more secure software systems. Like ultimately, in a very tangible sense, that's my job. But that's actually not the way that I describe it. I say that my job is to actually enable innovation because if people are going to build these tech solutions that solve these problems and the instant they're building it, someone just rips it apart or takes advantage of it or makes it so that adoption isn't viable because people don't want to use the thing because it's you know has all these security problems to it, that's a problem. That's a hindrance to innovation and and so I see in the grandest sense what security professionals do. Our job is to enable that innovation so that the pioneers can continue to pioneer and we're there fighting the battles with the people who want to exploit it. I want to talk about the battles that you're fighting in just a second because I find this so exciting and interesting and important. But before we do that, I want to define those black hat hackers. Who are these adversaries, the unethical hackers? Why do they want to get into systems in the first place? What are they after? So that's a really good question. And we have to first address the question within the question, which is the, or the assumption that's within the question, which is that are these all the same? Are attackers all the same idea? And the answer to that is unequivocally no. So what we have to first realize is that we have to realize that there are a variety of attacker types. They're all motivated by different things. They have different access to varying levels of resources of time or person power or money. And just ultimately they're different. And that's really, really important because what we have to realize is that you don't really defend against everybody all the same. Different attackers will be more or less interested in different types of victims to attack because of what motivates them. And so when we can understand those things, that helps us really sort of break apart the problem a little a bit more. It's not just, hey, these faceless people want to hurt me for unknown reasons. It's, hey, they have a, they're just like you and me, right? They have motivation in their life. They want to go achieve something. They have families that they want to support. And so the simplest way to think about it, I, I talk about this a lot in uh, a book that I wrote called Hackable that really examines how do you build secure software systems. And I'll keep this at the highest level, but anyone who wants more detail, it's, it's, there's a ton of detail on these ideas in that book. The principal distinction is you've got external attackers and you've got the 
insider threat. And really the difference between those two is insiders have elevated trust and elevated access. So people often think of the insider as an employee. All employees are insiders, but not all insiders are employees. It's really just anybody who has elevated trust. So that could be a contractor, could be a third party company that you integrate with, could even be like members of the board or members of your family. And there's four types of those. And they are the accidental insider, the opportunistic insider, the, the disgruntled insider, and the malicious determined insider. And each of those have slightly different characteristics and they're motivated by different things. And I'd be happy to tell stories about any of these you want, but I'm just keeping it, trying to keep the answer uh, as short as we can at the moment. But so there's four types of insiders and then there's five types of the external attackers that don't have that elevated trust and access. And those are groups like casual hackers, you know, people who just want to prove they can do it. They're interested in notoriety. You've got hacktivists, which are a type of attacker that's motivated to make a point or make a political statement. You've got corporate espionage, which are groups that will attack in order to gain some sort of competitive advantage over other you know, rivals in their economic sphere, you know, other companies or other nations or whatever. And then you've got organized crime and organized criminals are motivated by profit. So they want to make money. And then finally, you've got nation states, which are just like what it sounds like, you know, one nation who wants to gain geopolitical advantage uh, over another. And I think the key to take away from all of this is that each of these, they have different characteristics, different access to resources. And we can look at something like organized crime as an example. Most people think of hackers of the bad kind are motivated to make money. And that's very true for organized criminals. And when you think about, well, how do you now take that piece of information and apply it? Well, here's how you apply it. You apply it by saying, okay, well, if we're concerned about that type of attacker, then what we need to do is we need to realize they're going to make business decisions. So they're going to attack an organization in order to make money. But if our defenses can make it so that it's more expensive for them to do that, like it's harder, it takes more time, they have to use specialized tools, well, then maybe they'll go attack an easier victim. And so by understanding the attacker, understanding their mindset, understanding their motivation, that helps inform our defense strategy. So you've defined a multiplicity of numbers of different kinds of hackers. When you when you train ethical hackers to ethically hack, do you train them to think like all of these different kinds of categories of hackers? Or is there a way that hackers think that unifies all of these groups? And if so, how do hackers think? How do we think like a hacker? So there are some things that unify all these different groups, and there are certain uh, some things that keep them distinctly defined individually. But if we think about the center of that Venn diagram, I guess the thing that is commonality to to all of these types of attackers, they do follow a process. And I'm of course generalizing here, but the first part of the process, of course, they they set a goal, right? They say, hey, I want to go achieve something, and then they evaluate the system in furtherance of that goal. So they might say, hey, I want to, I don't know, disrupt this particular part of the economy for this reason, because it's going to benefit me in some way. And so once they have their goal, now they look at the system in scope of what they're going to want to attack. And then they start probing the system to determine are there weaknesses that maybe could be expanded upon in order to really uh, create a, uh, an attack sequence. And then once they find a potential vulnerability that says, hey, this system isn't supposed to work like this, we just found flaw. Then the next is they determine can that flaw be exploited? And if so, then they will actually execute the 
attack. So pretty much all attackers follow to some degree that progression. There's oversimplifying it, of course, and different attackers will do different parts of it differently based on their access to resources or skill. But generally speaking, that's sort of the way that attackers think is they say, how can I break this system? How can I do it in order to achieve my goal, which whatever my motivation drives me to go achieve and then go through this rough steps in this process. So how would you train somebody to think like a hacker? Well, to a certain extent, I think people are probably already predisposed in some sense to this way of thinking. And that is what draws them to this type of field. And when I think about the best ethical hackers that I know, this is just the way they see the world. <laughs> they see everything. Like uh, as, as an example for myself, I really don't like waiting in line. I mean, I don't think anybody likes waiting in line, let's be honest, but I see a line as something that is not for me, right? And I look at lines and I'm like, okay, well, here's obviously a system that defines how people are supposed to to, you know, queue up in a certain way in order to get into whatever this establishment is. And I'll look at it and say, is there another way? You know, can I make this system behave differently so I don't have to wait in line and I can go in sooner or whatever? And, you know, that's of course sort of like a whimsical metaphor for the idea here, but that's just an example of like, that's kind of the way that I think. How often do you come across a line in your life, right? Like probably once a week, at least there's some sort of line, maybe once a day. And every time I come to a line, it's just, it's automatic. But can you be taught that? I think so. I think, yes, you definitely can because really what hacking is, as I alluded to before is it's a problem solved, right? So if you take smart people who are analytical and are sort of wired for problem solving, and you say, okay, here are the typical parameters for this type of problem. And those parameters are, you need to identify how a system works. You need to identify what uh, assumptions are baked into that system. And then you need to identify, can those assumptions be manipulated in some way? Like people will often say a user won't ever do it that way, or no one will think to do that. And it's like, but will they? And that's sort of what, you know, you probe to. And I think that can, to a certain extent, be taught. And then, you know, you're pairing essentially these two ideas. One is how do you have that sort of malicious mindset, even though you're doing it for good, you need to have that mindset of, okay, if I wanted to make money by attacking this company, how would I make money by attacking this company? And that's sort of, I don't know, a creative iterative process that even people like us who are on the ethical side who do it for good, we can definitely put ourselves in that mindset. And then the other, so the, that's the first, how do you adopt this malicious mindset? And then the other is how do you have that degree of empathy? to be able to really put yourself in the shoes of the person who built the system or the group who built the system and say, okay, what were they thinking when they were building the system? I don't mean that in a critical way, like, what were they thinking? I mean, more like, like literally, what was their thought process about how the system would work and how people would interact with it? And by understanding sort of that thought process, we're now able to identify where the flaws or the gaps might be in the logic. I love that answer on multiple levels, especially because I think that it points to the fact that the jobs in ethical hacking are as much about being able to problem solve as much as about being able to reconstruct a story, an origin story of how a system got built, as much as about having a kind of critical mindset as it is about having the technical tools and technical strategies. You know, you mentioned that your background into the area was also non-traditional in a sense. I'd love if you could say more about that. And I, I'd love if if you could talk a little bit to our audience of the next generation of potential technologists, next potentially uh, generation of ethical hackers about what kinds of things you think they need to bring to the table in that blend of kind of technical expertise on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the strategies and the competencies that you've just talked about. Yeah, so ethical hacking is undeniably a technical field. There's uh, there's no way around that, if, specifically if you want to be the person who breaks systems, right? 
right? If you want your job description to be ethical hacker or security engineer, like that, that role where your job is to hammer away at a system. Yeah, you need to understand the fundamentals of many different types of systems. You need to know the fundamentals of your science. You need to understand some networking, stuff like that. But you also really need to understand the principles of psychology. We've obviously talked a bit today about how do we think the way that other people think? How can we learn or apply empathy? How can we deduce motivation or reasoning? And all of those, what would I think really be considered more softer air quotes, <laughs> in air quotes, uh, softer skills, those things are pretty critical to being successful in this, in this type of field. But if I was to be speaking to somebody who's considering this as a career field, I would give a few pieces of advice. The first would be that there are going to be some real, but mostly perceived barriers to entry. And I say that because these perceived barriers are often what keep people out. So there's this huge shortage of enough security talent in the world today. We need more of it. We need more security talent. And a lot of security talent comes out of computer science uh, programs, or at least even if you're, you know, there's plenty of people who succeed in this field without any sort of degree, but they at least understand computer science. And maybe that's what they, their hobby is, what they do on the side. So you do need to understand the principles of computer science, but there's these often misconceptions that it's security is really, really hard. And so maybe we should, you know, do something else that might be an easier path to success. And security is hard, but everything's hard. <laughs> Literally everything in life is hard. So I don't think that's a good enough reason to not do it. Yeah, I mean, it's only hard when you haven't started it because you haven't started it. You don't know it yet. And that's going to be true of literally anything that you'd study. So security is often perceived to be really, really hard and it is hard, but everything's hard. So let's reject that one. The second one is that it pushes, it puts some people off because it's very competitive, but you're competing against other people's work and people sometimes don't like that, right? So if your decision is, can I build something for myself or can I look at someone else's work and find the holes in it, the flaws in it? Some people don't like that mindset of like tearing down other people's work. But what we have to do is we have to realize that that's actually a positive thing. We're helping those other people achieve their goals. So it's actually not a negative thing. It's not it's not the same as walking around and like making fun of people and you know poking out their flaws or whatever, but rather it's helping people achieve their goals. So even though it has that competitive nature to it, it's for a very productive purpose. And the third thing that I mentioned is to recognize that it will take a lot of work. And there's not necessarily a way around this, but most degree programs don't actually teach everything that you need to know about security in the context of the degree. So you're going to have to put in a lot of work outside the classroom. You're going to need to do research. You're going to be involved in the clubs. But again, anything that you want to do that you're passionate about, you're going to be doing more than just the, you know, the minimum of what's required in your studies. And so I would say thinking about those things, realize that it might at times feel like security is going to be a really hard field to enter and it will be difficult, but it will be so rewarding. And those perceived barriers should just look past them to realize what the barriers really are, which is more a perception than reality. I asked this question in particular because I think that probably ethical hacking is going to be one of the bigger industries in the tech sphere and in industry. I think that there's going to be a lot of jobs opening up in that area. And one of the reasons I think that is that I see cybersecurity increasingly in the news stories. For instance, in the past few months, the New Yorker ran an article on ransomware hackers, i.e. hackers who break into systems in order to hold companies and organizations hostage and companies who serve as ransom negotiators. They ran another piece on governments using hacking as weapons of war and a third piece titled 
I think very illustratively, after the solar winds hack, we have no idea what cyber dangers we face, which is, as the title suggests, a piece about how there are so many dangers we face with hacking that the author of the article doesn't even know where to start. So where should we start? We should start by doing an exercise that's called threat modeling. So threat modeling, the way I think about threat modeling, the simplest way to think about it is if you can imagine, you know, pick whatever professional sports team or league that you like, but let's just use, I think the NFL, or the National Football League is probably a good metaphor. And you think about whatever team is your team. Let's say it's New England Patriots, right? New England Patriots are paying the Buffalo Bills this coming weekend. And what do they do? What do those two teams do? They scout each other, right? They, they spend the whole week evaluating the other team. They, they evaluate what is the opponent's strengths, what are the opponent's weaknesses, what are our own strengths and our own weaknesses, especially in context of the opponent's strengths and weaknesses. And once we think about those things, how do we build a game plan that helps us maximize our own strengths and sort of minimize our weaknesses? How do we exploit the opponent's weaknesses and how do we neutralize the opponent's strengths? That's really what threat modeling is. Is It's like a scouting report. It helps you think about how are you going to build that game plan. And it helps you answer three questions. And these are the three questions. And they're really, really, really important because once you answer these questions, you now know where to invest time, effort, and money. And it helps answer directly the question that you, you mentioned, which is, hey, this is such a big, complex, meaty problem. We don't even know where to start. Once you can answer these three questions, that will make clear for you where to start. And the three questions are this. Question number one, what do you want to protect? So these are your assets, right? These are both, whether it's tangible things like data or money, and but there's also intangible assets. So things like the, your reputation of the brand or system availability, things like that. So question number one, what do you want to protect? Question number two, who do you want to defend against? And so this, we actually already talked about a bit today. We talk about the different types of attackers and who are we more concerned about relative to others? The third question is where will you be attacked? And so that helps you think about what's called attack attack surfaces that your organization might have. So an attack surface is basically wherever information can be accessed. It's the simplest way to think about it. It's, the definition is a little more precise than that, but that's the simplest way to think about it. And now you're able to, once you've answered sort of those three questions, where will I be attacked? Who am I worried about defending against? And what am I trying to protect? It all starts to crystallize when you realize, hey, I only have limited resources. I only have limited amount of time, limited amount of money, limited amount of person power. But now that I know what's my number one priority in terms of what I want to protect? What's the number one priority in terms of who might want to attack in order to compromise the asset? And then what's the number one way they might do that, which is, you know, your attack services. Now you're able to say, okay, I know where we should start in terms of uh, investing time, effort, and money. What keeps you up at night in the context of cybersecurity? So that, that's a good question. And one that I think is probably abused <laughs> in security by marketers. <laughs> marketers are abusing that to security professionals for sure about like, oh, this keeps you up at night, you know, come buy our product or our service and you'll be able to sleep well at night. And I get the the spirit of why that's a good thing. But when I think about what keeps me up at night, it's a little different. I, I do, of course, you know, worry about organizations getting compromised and things like that. I mean, that's my entire profession. But really the thing that I worry about is sort of two intersecting issues. Issue one is I worry about how often organizations seem to misunderstand really what security is, why it matters. They think of it in the wrong context. They think of it as like a, a tax on the business and like any tax, they want to reduce it. 
and they see it as a cost to minimize. They don't really see it as a business opportunity. And it quite frankly is a business opportunity. That's actually one of the main arguments that I make in my book is that if you do security right, it actually gives you this amazing competitive advantage in the marketplace. So that's one concern is that people sort of misunderstand what security is. And as a result, they sort of, they don't invest in it appropriately. They try to marginalize it. And it would, you know, if we go back to the fitness metaphor, it would be like somebody who says, yeah, 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 no, my fitness is important, but they make no effort to actually, you know, even buy leafy greens, let alone eat them. They don't make any effort to monitor their sugar intake. They, they don't, they think that if they do like two push-ups a day, because someone said push-ups are good, they're, you know, somehow going to be fit and healthy. And that's the way a lot of organizations think about security. They're like, what's the minimum I can do? And then when you take that and you intersect it with the reality that companies are getting hacked every day and there's news stories about it every day, I do worry a little bit that there might be a little fatigue about all these breaches. I call it, I refer to it as breach fatigue. And so that people might eventually be like, well, if everyone's getting hacked all the time anyway, like what's the point? And so now if you combine those two, now you might have a reality where you've got companies who are or could be or soon will be victimized and aren't doing anything about it or aren't doing an appropriate amount of effort about it. And so then when you combine all that, it's only a matter of time until they get compromised and it could be really bad. And that might be the point where they realize, oh, maybe we should have thought about this differently. And that to me, I think if that were to expand on, on scale, right? Like if all companies started thinking that way, then everything would just like the, the attackers would win and we can't allow that to happen. So those are the things that sort of worry me a little bit. I wonder if I could pick up on something you were saying about cybersecurity being an, a professional advantage. That was really interesting to me, especially because I think about the principle of trust, which is really what pulls us back to a mega marketplace like Amazon, where we feel like we can trust the company to compensate us if something goes wrong, where we feel like our information is relatively secure, where we feel like somehow the people in the marketplace have been somewhat vetted. Whether or not those premises are true or not, those are certainly things that I think help the business succeed. What do you mean by professional advantage and how does cybersecurity connect to that? Yeah. So what we have to do to answer that is we have to think about the way that buyers of products and services feel about the companies that they buy their products and services from. And of course, we're talking about this in the context of technology. So it's obviously very different if you're talking about selling, I don't know, like janitorial services, maybe, maybe that might be different. But if you're talking about a, imagine a large enterprise and they hire, they pay for a service to help them with digital signatures, right? So they can literally like sign documents or whatever without printing them out. That's, that's a great example of a business that does business with another business. And so what do the buyers want, right? The buyers, of course, they want the business problem they're trying to solve. They want it solved. They want it done in a price point that fits their budget. And they want, you know, they'll have whatever their different requirements are. But one of the things that is really important to businesses today doing business with other companies is they expect security. Now, they're not typically willing to pay more for it, which is in itself a problem. In most cases, they're not usually willing to pay more for security, but they want it anyway. Okay, so that's one side of the equation that the buyers of products and services, they want security from the people they buy products and services from. That's sort of just universal if there's something worth protecting. So now put yourself in the shoes of the company that is building something, building a software system and trying to sell products and services to that buyer. Okay, well now you have to be able to give the buyer uh, the thing that they want. And here's what's really interesting is that almost all companies really struggle with securing their software systems. And of the ones who are doing it well, they really struggle to prove it. So now take all that together. So you've got the buyer 
buyer wants X, almost nobody can give them X. If you can give them X, it's hugely differentiating. And so that is how you get this competitive advantage because you can, if you actually build better, more secure software systems, and that's a really important not to be overlooked if, you must first build a secure system. You can't just say you're secure. But if you actually build better, more secure software systems and can prove it, the buyer loves it. And what winds up happening is that it makes the procurement process more streamlined. It removes a lot of barriers, a lot of hassle. And you hit the nail on the head when you said, really, today things are about trust. And there's whole departments of people in enterprises who are really evaluating trust. Like, do they trust this other company? Do they trust the claims this company's making? Do they trust the security posture that this company has supposedly uh, put in place? Because if that other company, the vendor gets compromised, ultimately, it's the big enterprise who gets in the headlines. Perfect example of that was a couple years ago, there was a, a really significant breach where a vendor of Netflix was uh, compromised. And the headline in the New York Times literally only mentioned Netflix, but it wasn't Netflix, it was compromised. It was their vendor. And that's the kind of stuff that enterprise buyers are worried about, right? They want to make sure that they're not the ones who not only get hurt, but also get the bad press. And so that's why they invest time, effort, and money in making sure that their partners are secure. So when you can prove it, then that gives you a competitive advantage. I want to pull out a thread of something that you said there, which I think is so important. When I talk to CEOs and when I talk to people building companies who ask me, what can I do to make sure that my company is ethical? How do I make sure that what I'm doing is ethical? One thing I say back to them is, you know, ethics isn't kind of like a prosthetic or an appendage that you can build onto a product or onto a company once you've already built it. It has to be part of the infrastructure. It has to be part of the foundations. And I think what you're saying here is so important. People need to think about cybersecurity as part of the structure, not the thing that they do once they've scaled it up and they're building this thing and now they're kind of scaling it for a larger number of people, not once the idea has already been realized, but from the ground up. So can you give us kind of like your pitch for why cybersecurity needs to happen at the onset, at the beginning, why it has to be in place in the structure from the get-go? Okay, so let me let me use a metaphor to make the case for you. So most mornings I have a smoothie for breakfast, right? So I put in all kinds of healthy stuff, right? You got your your spinach and of course lots of water. You got some bananas, some pea protein, some nut butter. And when I make the smoothie and I pour it into my glass, I have one of two options to clean the blender. I can do it now or I can do it later. And that's sort of the decision that people have to think about when it comes to security or even the way you described is you want to think about something ethically now or later. So the decision I make when I clean the blender, which is also the way we think about security, is do I do it now or do I do it later? So mo in most cases, organizations will say, you know what? I got a ton of things to do today. Email inbox is filling up. I got phone calls. I got all this stuff to do. I'll clean this blender when I get home. So you just put the blender in the sink. You go run off. You do those other things. Later, you come back. You're tired. The day's been long. You know you're going to need to make the smoothie the next morning. To clean the thing is a nightmare because all those ingredients now, they've hardened on it. And so what I have to do is I have to soak it. I have to disassemble it. I have to scrub it, reassemble it. And then you know now I finally cleaned it. So by doing it later, effectively what I've done is in the moment, like as I'm rushing in the morning, I made my life a little bit easier because I didn't do anything. But I made my life way harder later when I definitely did not want to be doing that work. I'd already done, like the smoothie was so far in my memory that now having to clean up for it later, it was just, I don't want to do that. 
So that's one way you can do it. You can do it later. And security is like that too. People push it off and it causes enormous pain to do security later. Once they built the thing and then you find out, hey, here's this flaw in the design. You don't have to go back and you have to actually reconsider the design. That's an enormous amount of work. Developers want to be focused on other things, enhancing the product, not rebuilding it. But the other thing I could have done instead of cleaning the blender later, I could have cleaned it right then. So that makes me have to pause for a few seconds in as I'm getting ready for the rush of what's coming next, put a, like a drop of soap and a little bit of water and then run the thing again. And it literally cleans itself because I did that teeny tiny little bit of work. There's no scrubbing, no disassembly, no reassembly. I don't come home to dirty dishes later. I'm not dealing with it when I'm tired. It's done. And so that's really the challenge that people have to think about is do you want to think about security in the moment? And it takes a small amount of work, almost no work, because you already have the right people in the right rooms having the right conversations, right? They're talking about what are we building? Who are we building it for? What does it need to do? What sort of features do we need to have in order to solve the business problem we're trying to solve? Okay, well, it's just another question, right? Which is, given all of that, what are we trying to protect? Who's going to be attracted to attack the system because of what we're trying to protect? Now we know what the functionality is. Oh, now we know our attack surface. And so that's really why we want to build security in because it makes the actual functionality of security much more effective. But it also winds up being way, way easier and actually less expensive. So this is one of these sort of, it almost sounds too good to be true, but I assure you it's true. And I go <laughs> in the book, I lay out all the numbers for this case because I even agree that it sounds ridiculous. But it's actually more effective and less expensive to build security in than to push security off to later. And a lot of people think like, oh, I can't, can't slow down for that right now. We're moving too fast. But it actually is way more expensive in terms of investment of effort overall to fix these changes later. And there's a whole bunch of data that supports that. But yeah, more effective, less expensive to build security in and just ultimately makes your life a whole lot easier. I love it. I can leverage this conversation for both my ethical technology work and for my Vitamix. I wanted to ask you a question about the kind of way that we think about cybersecurity, not just as a kind of group organizational or professional or business level, but as an individual level, because I think all of us need to be thinking individually about cybersecurity much more thoughtfully and much more consistently than we are. And my hope is that by teaching people to think about cybersecurity early and on an individual dualistic level, they'll also start to think about it when they go into industry. And when sometimes when I talk to my students or sometimes when I talk to friends, family members, I bring up cybersecurity and they say, well, why should we care if somebody looks in my email or I have nothing to hide? Sure, they want to protect bank accounts and credit card accounts, but why should ordinary people care about security? That's a great question. And one that is a very common belief that people have, like who would care? I'm too small. I'm just one person. I'm not doing anything wrong. I have nothing valuable. And and they often think that it's like, not till I'm a world leader or a, a titan of industry or something like that, that someone would care about. And yeah, they, when you're a titan of industry or a world leader, definitely your risk profile significantly changes and significantly increases. But here's why the, end of the average individual should care, is that maybe there are certain things in your life that you don't care about. So an example would be maybe a lot of people have are getting uh, smart light bulbs, right? These light bulbs that you control with an app or with a, a voice assistant, you can say, hey, 
you know, turn on the light and you walk in and it's like kind of cool, I guess. And people might think, well, who cares if you hack the, my light bulb, right? Like maybe it flickers on or maybe it flickers off. Well, attackers might want access to the computational power in that light bulb to be able to do something else. Maybe they want to be able to attack that light bulb and pivot to other things on your local network. And now your tax returns, which are stored on that local network, now they get access to that. Now they have your social security number. Now they have all this information that can be used to uh, replicate or recreate your identity and take a loan out in your name or something like that. And so thinking about the fact that even though each individual person might feel like small and faceless to the attackers, they're trying to attack a large number of people and they don't really care who you are. And the way we want to be thinking about why this should matter is that even if we feel like we don't have anything worth stealing, we probably do, right? Even people who are saying, I have nothing to hide. You probably still don't want some evil person in your email, right? And you even drew a distinction there, which was, well, of course, yeah, we don't want someone attacking, you know, hacking into my bank account, but maybe hacking into my other whatever isn't a big deal. Well, attackers know that most people reuse the same password and username credential pair across most services. Unfortunately, that's the reality. Most people do that. They don't use unique credentials across services. So when you're whatever, you know, I just my when your Candy Crush account login or on whatever game you play, when that gets compromised, you're like, who cares? Well, if you're using the same credentials for your banking, attackers are going to guess that that's probably what you're doing. And so what attackers will commonly do is they'll, once they get access to, once a particular system gets compromised, they'll take those credentials and they'll go try them at all these other banking institutions because of the assumption that people will be replicating or reusing those credentials. So that's how we might want to think about it. This idea of by really trying to think like an attacker, we're able to now say, oh, okay, well, this might be why I should care as a person because I can't care in only one part of my life. I either have to care across the board or I have to care not at all. And if I think I want to care not at all, maybe that's flawed too, because maybe there are these other things that I hadn't even thought about that might be valuable to me or my loved ones that an attacker might want to leverage in order to achieve whatever their particular goal is. I have a question now kind of on behalf of the student population that I work with. If you're an undergraduate thinking about a career why choose ethical hacking? Because it's awesome. <laughs> it's fun. Uh, I think the reason that you would choose this field is if you're the kind of person who meets a lot of the, or is interested in a lot of the conditions that I, I mentioned before, things like you like solving problems, you like solving hard problems, you like being able to think about the way that other people think as part of the problem solving process. If you're the kind of person who is motivated to try to help other people, individuals, and groups improve and achieve what they're trying to achieve, then this might be an area for you. If you're the kind of person who is motivated to constantly get better, to improve your own skills every day, this might be a really good place for you. And then if you take all of that, and I don't think that necessarily any, I don't think all of those are exclusive to ethical hacking. I don't know many industries that necessarily have all of those things, but ethical hacking definitely is one career field that does. But take all that and now wrap it in this sort of like this weird, you get to be in corporate America, but you're totally rejecting of like the boring parts of corporate America, right? Like uh, most ethical hackers, it's not your typical, like, let's go sit in a cubicle and wear our khaki pants and our polo shirts and be bored to death behind, you know, screens all day, every day or behind, we're definitely behind screens, but uh, bored in just like meeting after meeting. It's more of that sort of like hands-on, it's almost like countercultural, the vibe. And to me, I think it's, you know, tech already has that very relaxed air to it where you just have smart people 
people solving problems, kind of rejecting typical corporate cultural norms. Then within that, there's a subset that is security. And within that, there's this subset that's ethical hacking, which is like, I don't know. I mean, people show up in hoodies and t-shirts and just, it's just a relaxed, fun environment where you're surrounded by brilliant people solving problems, working to get better. And that's why I do it. Can you say a little bit about your company culture and its relationship to what you actually do? Like, how are those things connected, if at all? Yeah, we, we've spent a lot of time sort of defining our mission statement and why we like what the vision is and kind of where we're going. And there's, I, I won't necessarily bore you with the whole mission statement. It's meaningful to us, but it might not be meaningful to people outside of our organization. But there's one word in there that I think is the good answer to your question, which is community. We talk about how we're a community and that is one of the things that really defines our culture is that we're a group of people who are on a common mission. We all look out for each other. And I mean, it's also like, like any normal company, people come and go, but it's this vibe of where I think what really attracts people to a company like ours and makes people want to stay at a company like ours is this idea, this, these sort of bonds you have with your peers and your coworkers. And that again, not necessarily unique to us, other companies certainly have that community vibe. But when we were evaluating all the different things that has made our company successful over the last, you know, 10 plus years, we've been thinking about that. Yeah, it's it's because these people like working with each other. And that teamwork element is, you know, one of the things that really makes it both a special place to work and makes the work product that we deliver very effective. I asked this question because I see you as one of the leaders of the industry and somebody who really kind of has a finger on the pulse of where things might be going in the industry. What do you see happening? Where where do you see the industry going in the next decade or so? Well, one of the trends that's already underway, that's actually a bad trend. And we'll see if people realize like how long it takes for people to realize that it's a bad trend, but it, it stems from a good idea, but the execution and implementation often is a little suboptimal. And I think where ethical hacking is trying to go is how can we automate it? How can we use tools in order to reduce the human element in this, this practice? And to a certain extent, I think that's really good because there are some things where you just, a human doesn't need to necessarily do certain things over and over and over again. And so automation is really good for that kind of stuff. But already today, people are trying, companies are trying to think about security testing and ethical hacking as something that really can be run at the push of a button. And, and I get why that would be an appealing promise, right? Like, oh my, the security problem is solved if I push this button and look at that, it's so much less expensive than having a human do these things. But unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. And and we really do need humans to be able to connect the dots. So for example, I'll, I'll tell you a story of where automation has its limitations. So there's a project that we did recently where we were looking at an application and we found these, we found two problems, more than two, but for the purpose of this story, there were two problems that are relevant. First problem is what's called information leakage, which basically means the system was giving up information it shouldn't. Now it's not on its own that bad of a problem. It's actually not even exploitable, but it's, you don't really want it to happen. And basically what it meant was that any user of this system could get the user identifier of any other user. Not that big of a deal, but you really don't want that to happen. Second issue is what's called broken authorization. And so what that meant is that the authorization, which is the permission to do something, the way that the system did that was wrong. And so if you wanted to change your credentials, you want to change your password, like anytime in most systems, you have to change your credentials. You usually have to supply some information. And in this case you did too, but the information you had to supply was your user identifier. So each individual ostensibly only knows their own user identifier. And so you can only change your own credentials. But when you combine 
minute with that information leakage, where now any user can identify any other user's ID and then use that to change the credentials for that user, you can literally take over every single account in the entire system. And that's such a both complex, but also simple and elegant attack sequence. But there is no tool that could ever automate something like that. And so these are the kinds of things where even in the next, I mean, I do believe that, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning will eventually be able to make decisions like humans can down the line, but we're nowhere close to that. And so over the next 10 years, I think what's going to happen is people are going to keep trying to believe this dream that you can just automate ethical hacking, but hopefully realize that the automation piece is just a small component and it's not actually the part that really helps solve the larger part of the problem. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because it leads me right into my next question, which is about the idea that these jobs in ethical hacking are not going anywhere, that these jobs are going to be done by humans and they're going to be done by humans who have complex problem solving skills. And one of the things that motivated me to start this podcast and the broader ethical technology initiative at Cal Poly was seeing that there really is an enormous growth of ethical tech jobs in the, in the tech sphere. I think that this has on one level something to do with what's been called a tech lash or a backlash against the unintended consequences and unethical practices in the tech industry. But I think another part of it has to do with the, the fact that tech is very much still what we talked about as the wild, wild west, a space where there are very few rules, which means that bad actors can act badly in many spaces where there is no regulation, room to exploit vulnerabilities. Do you think that ethical hacking is a, a part of this growing broader space of ethical tech jobs and their growth or or is it its own thing well they're definitely intrinsically linked no doubt about it i would probably correlate the growth in the tech sphere to security overall and then i would correlate the growth in ethical hacking to the growth in security overall i guess you could make a looser connection between the growth of tech and the growth of ethical hacking but the reality of the world today is that this type of field i guess this type of skill set is in tremendously short supply it's pretty hard and takes a long time to accumulate the right skills in order to be a talented ethical hacker and so i think what's going to happen is that the growth of tech overall, the growth of the growth of security overall, those will grow at a faster pace than the actual supply of ethical hackers. Now, the demand for ethical hackers will grow in lockstep with the demand for security, but the supply, which is already we're way undersupplied of this type of security professional, that supply is not going to grow as fast just because it's not that easy. So, yes, this is a career field that will be here for the foreseeable human future, even as technology shifts. Like, who, who knows what tech's going to look like in 10 years. But even as it shifts to chips in our brain or like whatever's coming next, there will be a role for people who can look at a system and think about it differently. I think we only have time for a few last questions, and I want to make sure that I ask at least two of them. The first has to do with your book. And we are, of course, your podcast, which I think is an excellent way of distributing public scholarship. Many people who oftentimes don't read books will listen to a podcast. But I want to give you some space to talk about the book that you wrote and also just ask on, on a level of a writer to writer, why write a book? And what were the challenges of writing a book? And, um, and what for you might the benefits of writing as a whole have been? 
Yeah, well, the biggest barrier to writing a book or to doing anything hard is fear. And often people don't actually acknowledge the fear, which is what prevents them from doing it. I think there's a lot of people who want to write a book. There's even a lot of people who start writing a book. But the number of people on a per percentage basis relative to the human population who actually publish a book is extraordinarily small, infinitesimal. And fear is the biggest reason for that. Because fear, if not properly identified and addressed, will produce an endless stream of reasons for why you can't write a book. I don't have time. I can't prioritize it with other things. It's, you know, it's just going to take me a long time. I, I need to do X, Y, and Z before I can actually write the book. Oh, the writing's not good. The editing, you know, I need a professional editor. You know, there's, there's endless reasons. And so one of the things I did early in the process, thanks to my publisher who forced me to do this, I uh, wouldn't have anticipated doing it on my own. And I'm so glad I did was to actually name my fears. You know, what am I afraid of happening? How likely is that to happen? What happens if it does happen? How bad? is that like do I lose all professional credibility if that whatever that bad thing is happens and then ultimately what do you do about it so for me as an example one of the fears that I had it was so it's so silly now to like say it out loud and have it written down but one of my fears was write a bad book like what if I go through all this and the book sucks and that was a legitimate fear and then as you start writing it out you're like oh well the solution is pretty straightforward go write a good book and so that gives you now something actionable to say okay well what makes a book good and now you start now so you have something much more actionable than just this vague like oh, maybe I won't write a good book so I won't start the project and because I was able to do that I was able to reverse engineer kind of what are the things that make a book good what would be something that would be appealing to me and that sort of brings us around to your original question which is why did I write this book and I realized that you know part of writing a good book is make sure that you understand your audience understand a problem that they have and actually help them solve it and so the problem that I saw was that I saw all these it's, it's kind of funny the questions you're asking they are really well aligned to the book because I saw all of these tech companies that I get the privilege of advising and whether they were already our customer or we were talking about becoming you know maybe them becoming a customer or just people I met you know maybe after delivering a keynote address or something at a conference I found that everyone sort of had these same common problems when it came to securing their solutions and I thought that was really interesting that no matter the size of the company the geographic location how much sure they were how much headcount they had how much revenue they sort of all have these same problems and then when I think about how do you solve those problems the the conventional approaches to them were pretty much wrong. And that I couldn't stand for. And I said, all right, well, I have to go write this book that takes these stories from the front lines of ethical hacking and says, here's examples of how companies got it right. Here's examples of how companies got it wrong. Here's what to do instead. And so ultimately that's, you know, that's the book that I wrote was to help people figure out how to build better, more secure software systems. And I guess your third question was around what was the benefit for me? There's so many benefits that I've gotten out of this, but I think really one of the biggest and best is that the process of writing a book really helped me synthesize or simplify the ideas and figure out how to communicate them better. It's like the first draft, I wrote the first draft of the book in maybe like 10 weeks. So it took, let's just say it took 10 or 12 weeks to write the book. And then it, but then it took me about a year to edit it. So those same ideas that only took me like 10 weeks to actually put down on paper, took me like 50 plus weeks to actually sharpen and simplify and make it so that someone outside of ethical hacking could look at this and say, I get it. I know exactly what to do. Just to get the title of the book in, it is Hackable How to Do Application Security Right by Ted Harrington. And I want to just, just emphasize and underscore what you said about editing. You know, I tell my students, write every day. It's the only way that I know to make sure that you're kind of practicing and keeping fit. I give them the example of the musician or the athlete who you know doesn't wait until the day of the marathon or the day of the concert to get up on stage and play or to get on the track and 
run, you practice, 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 train, 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 keep the muscles up, keep the scales tight so that once you get onto the main event, you can actually automate a lot of the kind of basic activities and get the creative process at the forefront as well. And then the next thing I say is, and I'll, I'll write a crummy first draft and make sure that you, you know that it's going to not be A plus level to give yourself the, I think, sympathy and the room to write at all. If you think that you're going out there to perform Carnegie Hall, then you're going to put a lot of pressure on yourself to even get started. I know that for me, that's a barrier to entry. So I say, write that crummy first draft. Make sure that you believe that you're allowed to and give yourself permission to write that crummy first draft and then spend the next 50 weeks editing it so to get the synthesis out. And I think that there's a principle there. And part of that principle is that we, I say to my students, don't know necessarily what we think until we read what we've written. That the process of writing is not just the process of recording our ideas, but actually forcing those ideas out, forcing us to kind of constellate and really crystallize what we actually think. Could you give us a sense of what you perhaps newly understood about hacking or about yourself or about cybersecurity or your work once you had written the book, something that maybe you didn't know going into it, that the process of writing the book allowed you to understand? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but generally speaking, I felt like I really understand the nuances much better. And I understood why we might sequence together certain things. And it gave me this really amazing sort of dual opportunity on one hand to sit down with our, our own ethical hackers and say, you know, tell me what you do. Obviously, I know what they do. <laughs> like they work at our company, but like, tell me your job and getting to sort of hear firsthand their experience experiences and and learn in ways that you know maybe as a busy executive I didn't prioritize time to do before that was really that was an amazing benefit for me me personally and I'm sure it was a benefit for them too to be able to help others better understand exactly what they do and the other side of the coin being able to much more clearly understand what the people who are responsible for this go through so I interviewed a lot of chief technology officers and VPs of engineering and chief information security officers and hearing from them directly the things that like, I knew about out, obviously, but now hearing it differently and over and over again and sort of sharpening it, I think probably every idea that I had on that first, as you call it, the crummy draft, our, our editor or uh, publisher called that the vomit draft. That's not what I call it when I speak about it to myself, but on this uh, non-explicit rating podcast, I'll call it crummy first draft. No, but it's good advice, right? Yeah, just get the get the bad version out because that's another barrier people have. They're like, I don't want to write something bad. And so they sort of self-edit as go. I have a friend who's trying to write a book right now and she talks about it takes her, you know, three weeks to write one paragraph. I'm like, that's because you're editing as you go. You've got to just get it all down on paper. But anyway, yeah, I think those are some of the the things that, that I just got out of it that were so positive is being able to be able to express an idea in a few words and say, oh, well, I mean, the blender metaphor, right? Like that's that hit that struck me maybe six months into writing the thing. I'm like, that's such a simple way to think about this problem that I really struggle to advocate for why. And it's like, oh, it's like that blender. Cause I was literally looking at this blender that I had to disassemble and scrub. I'm like, this, this is, I don't want to do this right now. And so I think things like that helps you crystallize how to communicate. I'd like to end with a question that provides some direction to the next generation of humanists and technologists, people who take my classes and are thinking about going into tech. What advice would you give them if they were thinking about going into ethical hacking? What do you think that they should know, understand, or start thinking about? 
Well, certainly, I mean, if we were to call back to some of the themes that have gone through today, right? Understand why you want to do something. Understand about yourself. Are you the kind of person who wants to solve problems, get better every day, help other organizations? Do you want to compete against the constraints of breaking someone's system versus competing against the constraints of building something? I think overall, the if we were to take all of that and sort of simplify it to one idea, it's to think about a problem that you like solving and really obsess over the problem. And it doesn't need to be a specific problem. Like, okay, traffic is terrible. And maybe you want to obsess over solving a problem related to sitting in a car, with, you know, honking your horn and all that stuff. But you can also think about it more abstractly. Like maybe you're obsessed over how it just takes too long to do something. Maybe you're like me, you just don't like waiting in line. And maybe you obsess over problems like that. But the, the people that I see that are really happy and fulfilled in this type of field, they really obsess over this idea, the problem of, can I find the thing? Can I find the flaw? They love it. They, they're, you know, it's, it's happened on many occasions where people are like, this is what I would be doing on the weekend anyway. Like, this is what I do for fun. And now I get paid to do it. And it's my career and it's a noble career and I'm helping other people and I'm surrounded by smart people. And so that that's probably the single piece that I'll give that I think many of the other things we talked about roll under, which is think about a problem that you want to solve, obsess over that and other things will fall into place from there. Well, thank you so much, Ted. Yeah, thanks for having me. And if anyone wants to learn more about the book or wanted to contact me directly or wanted to follow me on social media, all that information is super easy to find, just tedharrington.com. And I'm very responsive. If people do contact me directly or hit me up on social media and use me as a resource, however I can help. 